and welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. I'm Chris O'Fall, the editor of the Toolkit. My guest today, writer-director David Lowry, here to talk about his new film, Old Man and the Gun. Uh, Robert Redford plays Forrest Tucker, a bank robber uh, who couldn't quit. Uh, breaks out of jail. How many times did he break out of jail? It's questionable, but 16 or 17 at least, and those were the successful ones. <laughs> Including San Quentin at age 70. Um, Robert Redford is also saying this will be his last acting role, this is a quote, uh, never say never, but I pretty well concluded that this would be, for me, um, it in terms of acting. I told David the one thing this movie had to be is fun. Forrest is a wonderful, complicated character, so full of life and risk and enjoying danger. He also had to be about fun. So going into this project, this kind of came to you uh, with, with, with Redford and with this idea that this mm-hmm. would be his last film, right? And I Not the last film. That was, that, that was a load that was dropped pretty late in the game. Oh, really? Um, because it, it, it was a New Yorker article written by, uh, what's his name? David, David uh, Grant. David Grant. So is that what it, is that what it was at, at, this, at this stage? It was this New Yorker article that he had acquired and he had wanted to make this film for a while in... William Goldman's sequel to Adventures in the Screen Trade, um, he talks about trying to, you know, talking about this project with Redford and trying to crack it and not quite sure how to do it, which is really <laughs> bizarre that now I'm the one who, who he entrustered to. Oh, like, Goldman, he, t- oh, he took a crack at this He's talked to him about it. Okay. And, uh, which is just like mind boggling to me. Right. The, so it's something he's been wanting to do for a long time. And shortly after Ain't the Body Saints premiered at Sundance, uh, his producing partner at the time, Bill Holderman, called me to see if I would be interested in meeting with him about it. I assume that he saw anything by the Saints and thought, oh, a guy who likes to making movies about outlaws in Texas, <laughs> I should meet him. And so I met with him. Uh, I read the article. When I read the article, you know, I just pictured Redford as Forrest Tucker and thought that this was indeed a quintessential Redford character. It is a spiritual successor to the roles that made him a star. So we met, we talked about it. I don't really remember that conversation much because I was so starstruck. Had you not already met him through having gone through Sundance at this point? Because you, you obviously have a relationship with the, the Festival Institute, but that, but that this predates that. Yeah, you know, he would often, you hear stories about him being at the labs. And in fact, I was an advisor at the labs this year and he was there, very much a part of it. But the year I was there, he was directing a film, so he was not around at the festival. He always gives a speech at the director's brunch, and so I saw him there, but we didn't interact. And he just had, re- he, you know, he remained the, the legend behind the podium up until I walked into that room, and, and there he was just hanging out. And, you know, I don't, yeah, I don't remember how I pitched my version of the movie to him, mm-hmm. but he liked it, and we started work on it. And one of your producers had said that, uh, in a way, this film is almost like if you can imagine those anti-hero characters that he played, you know, the, mm-hmm. the Butch and Sundance and, and the one from The Sting, that one almost can imagine this being what those characters might have ended up in their 70s and 80s, right? Like, and, Absolutely. It, it, that, that was on my mind as I was writing it. That was the intention, was to make this, again, a spiritual follow-up to those movies. Mm-hmm. I didn't want it to be a swan song. That was never my intention. But it Where did he drop that bomb on you? Is that in that sense? It was. I mean, past the script phase. Yeah, it was a few months before we started shooting. Um, it was. I remember it well because it was the week of the election in 2016. So uh, a very memorable week. And in addition to the news about our next president, I also, in the next day, got the news that he was adamant that this might be his last role. Um, 
he was doing an interview somewhere, I don't know where it was, and, and said that after he finished Old Man and the Gun, he was going to hang up his hat. And that was news to me. It was news to everybody. My phone just lit up, and I, I immediately felt this weight on my shoulders that I almost as immediately had to cast off. Because if I was going into this movie thinking about it being the last Robert Redford movie, I don't know what it would have become. You know, it feels in many ways like a capper to his career, but it's not heavy. You know, there's no sense of, of import to that final shot of him walking off screen. We, you know, we don't make a big deal out of it. And had I thought about this being the final Robert Redford movie when I shot that shot, I probably would have, you know, filmed it differently. You know, <laughs> we would have photographed it in a different way to, to give it that weight, and that would have been a mistake. Yeah, because he does, I mean, the thing about, I mean, and you've worked with great actors, and, and, and Redford's obviously one, but, you know, I think one thing that gets lost is, yes, they're great actors, and they can become these characters and stuff, but with movies, they walk onto screen, and they are something. There mm -hmm. is a presence. They mm -hmm. can play off that. They can take that in different directions, but there's an element, and Redford certainly is, is and he's capable of going in different directions, but there's something about no matter before he even starts acting, there's just something about him. And that carries with it a certain persona or a certain presence. And the thing about this film, and it, it's, it's interesting, I, I, this is the first I had known that you didn't write this knowing that he was doing it, but is that it embodies so much of what he was. There was there's, there's this ease about mm -hmm. him. There's something... Um, everything is so easy and charming about him, and and this almost you know we see antihero because I think right now, in the Tony Soprano Don Draper that has certain yeah. meaning, but it had a different meaning with those Cool Hand Luke did, Sundance yes. things. Yeah. And there's something about this that, in terms of the pacing of the film, the the way the film is structured, it has an element of Redford in him beyond just his presence. That it, it, it's almost on this bed of ease and charm that's him. There are two things I can say about that. One is that he carries with him the accumulated history of everything he has done, and you can't get away from that. There's no way for you to counteract that at this point. He is a force when he walks on camera because he has just been on camera for all of our lives. You know, <laughs> He was acting before I was born, uh, many years before I was born and was a star well before I was born. And so I grew up with him being the quintessential movie star. And when I see him in a movie, I carry that with me. So one of the great luxuries I had was working with him on Pete's Dragon before we made this movie. The initial drafts of Old Man and the Gun that I had written prior to making Pete's Dragon were a little closer to the true story of Forrest Tucker. And Forrest Tucker was a little bit more of a character. And after I did Pete's Dragon, I realized there's no way to get away from Robert Redford in some shape, way, or form being Robert Redford. That's always going to be there, whether he likes it or not. And I felt it was important to embrace that and to celebrate it and to really lean into it. So the subsequent drafts of the script, I let that be my North Star in terms of what the focus of the movie was going to be. Because there's some messiness, right? And his, there's, there's, I mean, one thing... Is that right? There, I think I'd read something. There was maybe in the in the real. There's there's some drugs involved and some other things in the yeah, real story. Yeah, it, it, it gets unsavory. Like it gets the, unsavory. the over the hill gang in our movie is 
Tom Waits and Danny Glover, which yeah. they're beloved as well. <laughs> in the real story, there were a group of like 20 or 30 hardened criminals who were involved with drug running and murder, and Forrest Tucker was probably the, the white knight amongst them, right. but he himself was not, he saw himself, he wanted to be Robert Redford playing an outlaw, but he wasn't, he never quite hit that peak. He never, he never became that guy. And so there's an inherent melancholy and sadness to the true story that is in the movie too, but more appropriately, we decided to celebrate the legend of what he wanted to be because that's what Redford would be best at capturing. I want to talk about that because there's an Elizabeth Moss character who, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, you could tell me, I think it feels like the second half of the movie. Where it we're, is, we're, yeah, it's like there's almost a, uh, a bifurcated quality to the story where it's a lot of fast-paced fun montages yeah. and all of a sudden really long dialogue scenes. And so we're introducing the fact that, and, and that's obviously a messy part of his life um, and she's certainly not pleased with her father and then there's also this element here and I've only seen it once but it felt to me like I didn't know that he went to jail or he'd have, I, I was watching the beginning of the movie thinking like he's never been caught. Yeah. Not this idea and there mm-hmm. seems to be this thing where it's like not only had you taken some of those elements out but there's also something in terms of how you structured it that when we start introducing not everything has been smooth sailing and there's some loose ends it, it feels like you're also moving towards this sense of you know so much of this movie is, is about him being old and yeah. that and and that kind of very carefully in terms, I wonder if you could talk about in terms of how you structured it, not only hiding some of that, taking some of that stuff out, but also when you introduce that and why you put it there. For the first half of the movie, he is the, the fun criminal who we just embrace wholeheartedly. We love him. You know, he, he is as charming to us as he is to Sissy Spacek in the movie. We just fall in love with him. And I knew that that would, you know, Redford is someone you are going to love throughout the entire movie. You're never going to not love him. If you're on board with him, you will love him in the movie. But as a character, as the character of Forrest Tucker, I wanted to make sure we complicated him so that we didn't completely let him off the hook for the very literal wrongdoings that he did in his life. And so after the fun half of the movie is over, which is all of the fun montages and the cat and mouse stuff, and uh, I wanted to make sure that we added that gravity to who he was and and to acknowledge that he did indeed hurt people and that he wasn't this great chivalrous knight in shining shining armor uh, a robin hood type who happened to you know uh not give to the poor (laughs) i don't think i don't know who knows what he did with his money i mean he really did just like stash it in those floorboards but um he certainly wasn't in it for the money but nonetheless like he he needed to have those rough edges and so Elizabeth Moss playing um, his daughter really was there to remind us that he has left a lot of heartbreak in his wake and that there are people who aren't charmed by him, who aren't taken over by that, uh, that guileless, you know, twinkle in his eye that he has. And of course, after that, we still are engaged with him. That doesn't make us not like him. It's impossible, again, to not like Robert Redford in a role like this, but it's important to keep that in mind. And so it was important for me to introduce a character like that late in the game to just sit us down for a moment and remind us of, of what the stakes really are. And in fact, we don't hear the name Forrest Tucker in the movie until after that scene. Like he is, uh, you know, a, just a, a guy in a blue suit, as, as Sissy refers to him, handsome in a blue suit. And, and indeed, we don't know that he's been in prison. If you, if you don't know the true story up until that point, you wouldn't realize what that backstory is. 
And I love the idea of just expanding our perception of this character in the final act of the movie. Indeed, in like the final 10 minutes of the movie, we really get the full breadth of who he is. And prior to that, it's a very narrow window. And you could almost say that the first half of the movie, we're seeing Forrest Tucker through his own eyes, and the second half, we're seeing it through the other characters who he is interacting with and who he's, he's impressing but also hurting. Certainly, Sissy Spacek does not come out of this movie with her heart intact. Another structuring device you had, uh, I love the way you did this, is um, you know the cop is Casey Affleck. Mm -hmm. and, and you've done this before, like, uh, Casey has that like, kind of slouch. He has, a, yeah. like, he has a certain tired, you know, for a young man, yes. he carries it, <laughs> and you use that in Ghost Story. And, 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 like, and that cop's life is, he's a little tired. He's just like, he's, there's no life. I mean, he's got a, he's got a nice family and stuff. Yeah. He's kind of, and the chase of Redford gives him a pep, like almost like the spirit of this. And so instead of like this, it is the fun of the cops and robbers, but there's almost like, he's in, in the chase is injecting like a fun to it. Definitely, I mean, I wanted, I loved the idea of Casey getting to uh, put his very real midlife crisis that he consistently seems to be in for as long as I've known him on screen. You know, that's why he's celebrating his 40th birthday in the first scene we meet him. But I also met the real John Hunt, who Casey plays, and okay. talked to him. And I didn't know if that was a real person. It's a real guy, yeah. yeah. Um, we changed almost everything about him, but he is a real guy, and the one thing that is very true is the fact that he loved chasing bank robbers. He loved it, and he looks back on that period of his career as the highlight. You know, after, after he got moved out of the um, robbery division, he you know, worked for the DA's office and then retired because he just never felt like he could recapture the fun he had when he was chasing these crooks who really also were loving what they did. He, he, he really felt like there was this mutual respect between cops and robbers at that point in time that doesn't exist now. Because, or it does exist sometimes. You hear about cases where there's like these really good bank robbers who pull off something that you can't help but be impressed by. But talking to him, you would just see that you know, light come on in his eyes. And when you talk about it, he was, he, this, this, this bittersweet, winsome you know, reminiscence of like the, the good old times when, when crooks were kind of good and good at what they did and made the cops better as a result of giving them something you know, challenging to engage with. So I really took that and ran with it and, and used that to lift this character out of that midlife crisis and find joy in what he's doing. And then I also love the perversity of the fact that that joy you know, was flipped on his head. As a cop, he does something that is truly unforgivable. He does something that is, you know, by nature of his profession, uh, of a, he makes a poor choice. Mm -hmm. But on a character level, that was the right thing to do. And as a filmmaker, as an audience member, when I see these movies in which I've grown to love the criminal, I know that it's inevitable that they will get caught and that the, the cop who I also am engaged with will slap the the cuffs on their wrist and there will be this mutual melancholy satisfaction in the fact that this had to happen. You know, that's what you get from Heat. Mm -hmm. You love both of those characters. You know that it can end well. You kind of wish that it could, but when they are in the cornfield or in the field at the end at the airport, you just know that's how things had to end up. But I'm also not Michael Mann. And I thought maybe, maybe my movie can be the one where that doesn't happen, where we get the satisfaction of the cop loving the criminal as much as we do 
and letting him go. But you do have your diner scene. We do have <laughs> a diner scene. You do, yeah. do, do, do you know, the, the Pacino yeah. De Niro famous diner scene from that. You have a bathroom scene. And I think there's an element, I don't know, maybe you could talk about when, when you wrote that. I, it's one of those things that I feel like probably you didn't know that you could pull it off until you had those two to get, like, there's, they have to pull that off. They I have mean, to. There was definitely a lot of consternation on my part and other people's part about whether it was enough. You know, there's so much expectation for there to be a chase and mm -hmm. for that level of engagement to be taken up several notches following the encounter. We knew there had to be the meeting. We knew we had to have that moment. That's fictional. John Hunt never actually met Forrest Tucker, nor did he ever arrest him, right? <laughs> he, what? he would arrest him, right? He would arrest him. He was a good cop. Yeah. He would have arrested him. Um, but, you know, I was just never sure if it would work. I was like, there was a, a lot of pressure that day because we knew that there was so much writing on it. And I was like prepared to rewrite the script the next day if I felt it wasn't working, if that, that wasn't enough. But, you know, we started shooting and instantly like that pressure evaporated and we were like, this is great. This is a great moment. And the thing that's great about it is that John Hunt is just starstruck. He's so delighted to see Forrest. Forrest doesn't know that he knows who he is. There's, a, there's some layers of, of ambiguity there, but, but John Hunt is just so pleased. And I remember just sitting off to the side of the set and laughing while we were shooting it. It was just, I was just so happy to see that happen and I knew that I wouldn't be alone in that. You know, you, you touched upon something that I, I, I thought a lot about when I walked out of the theater from having seen it, is that, you know, there is this emphasis on fun, um, and there is some fun with the cops and robbers. You find ways to structure it, but in general, this movie is, it, 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 it dials it down a mm -hmm. little bit. And so there, I have to imagine that's a, how do I layer this so that people, you know, because you got to have some, that, some kind of dramatic tension that has this forward movement to it. And that's a really tough balance because there was, and one of the things I loved about it is, is that this film, we're at a time right now where, and there's great films coming out right now, but it's like serious. Everything's mm -hmm. serious. And your film is, is, has a, a fun aspect to it. And so that balance of like, how much can I keep this forward movement yeah. so that you're engaged, but also be able to make this film that feels like a, an old man Redford film. It was, it was a lot of that was in the script. You know, again, like the first draft was 150 pages, and by the time we got to set, it was 80. Okay. I wanted to see how minimalist I could make it. Um, I really wanted to find as few moments as possible to, to allow audiences to latch on to the genre beats that they expect and, and let those beats be really graspable, very palpable, but then fill in the rest of the movie with unexpected detours and colors and, and to not really you know, follow the preordained path of a cops and robbers movie. And as a result, I think it definitely feels more like one of those early Redford movies because those movies are weird. The structure of, of of Butch and Sundance is a, is really strange and unusual, and and it's weird that it sustains itself. It, 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 yeah. it weird. It's weird that those things sustain themselves like it's, they do. It's true, but you but those movies too have these iconic moments that you can grab onto, and those are the ones you remember, and they make the movie feel more traditional in memory than they actually are when you sit down to watch them. And I hope this movie feels the same way. Like you'll you'll probably remember that bathroom scene. <laughs> you'll remember elements of the cat and mouse, you might remember the climax of the movie, but if you sit down and watch it in 10 or 15 or 20 years, hopefully it's surprising 
how many detours it takes and how unusual the shape is. Even that bifurcated structure that we were talking about, the fact that the first half of the movie is a lot of montages and very fast paced and very fun and then it just hits the brakes and gradually slows down for the rest of the running time. Um, the filmmaking, I don't, there's some elements, I don't want to say it's 70s filmmaking, but there's some, there, there seems to be some spirit that you're sure, embodying yeah, yeah. with it. And in general, that, that filmmaking tends to be a little bit loose. And it, Definitely. It, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about, you know. We tried to make this as loose as we possibly could. You know, part of the fun of having an 80-page script was that it allowed us to kind of just veer off of it sometimes and try things out. And I would write new pages every morning and... And then I also just tried to limit myself to one or two takes. I didn't want to have too much coverage of any given scene. I didn't want to have too many options in the edit. I really wanted it to feel spontaneous. And I wanted there to be mistakes in it. You know, I didn't want to be too precious. If we didn't quite hit our marks and the camera was slightly out of focus here and there, I was okay with it. If the dolly bumped, that was okay. You know, the technicians, who, my DP would hate me saying that, but like, we were, we were okay with that. Which is um, different than how you've approached other films, right? I mean, you, yeah, I okay. took very pristine. You know, I I could go full David Fincher if you let me and do a hundred takes. I see the value in that, and I have engaged in that before. But you know, on Pete's Dragon, one of the things that Redford taught me was that more often than not, the first take is great. Mm -hmm. And as a filmmaker, so often the first take is the one where I'm getting used to the idea of what the scene might be like. And then I do another take to just sort of reassure myself. And then I do another take to find out what might, what I might have missed. And then the fifth take is the one where we might try something new. But when I get to the edit, the first take is usually the one I'm going to use. Mm -hmm. And that has been true time and time again, even though I will do upwards of 20 or 30 takes if given the opportunity. So with this film, I decided to just really, you know, force myself to, to keep it to a minimum and to only do a handful of takes not do a lot of coverage. There's a lot of scenes in the movie where we have amazing actors, you know, giving really good performances, but we're not seeing them. You know, you hear them. You hear Danny Glover and Tom Waits off camera. You see them. It's an over-the-shoulder shot in Bob. We do the whole scene as an over-the-shoulder shot. And let that, we, I was like, that's enough. That's going to cover the scene. We don't need to cut to close-ups of every actor who's talking on camera. And as a result, we had a lot of flexibility on set. You know, we, we didn't have a lot of time to shoot the movie. It was like a 30-day schedule, but we we had a lot of fun in that time. It felt very relaxed, and we, we were able to engage with the spontaneity that uh, allowed the movie to have that feel, that vibrancy that I think it has. You just spoke very eloquently about w why you approach it that way, but is there also, I mean, you also can move quicker that way, right? To a certain degree, is that part of that? You can move a lot more quickly that way, but you also have to recognize, for me as a director, I had to recognize I'm working with actors who physically can't move that quickly anymore. And that's not, I mean, you know, when, when you get to 60, 70, 80, I, I hope that I'm in as good a shape as Robert Redford is, but you can't do like six location moves a day anymore. It's just, it's just too exhausting. And it will wear out someone who's in their 20s. Mm -hmm. So we had to also measure our, like what we were doing every day and make sure that we were, you know, allowing Bob to do his best as an actor, to allow the whole cast to do their best, you know, and, and to make sure we were working within their means as well. What about the look of this film? Um, there is, there's, you know, I don't want to say it's pure 70s, but yeah. there, is, there is an attempt to have like a little grain, to have a little texture. I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about the look. Joe, by the way, this was shot by Joe Anderson, who I think 
has worked on some of your other films. Yeah, Joe risen up. Joe was a second unit DP on Ain't the Body Saints. Bradford really felt that he was like the only one who could do (laughs) do justice to the stuff we were shooting on the main unit. And and then we've worked together on other things over the years. And this was the first time we really got to work on a feature together in this capacity. Um, And he's amazing. He's also one of the few cinematographers of his generation that learned how to shoot on film, which is important to me. We chose Super 16 for this movie because we wanted the film, the fact that it was shot in film to be an ever-present part of the aesthetic, but we also didn't want it to be too glossy. Mm. You know, Ain't the Body Saints is gorgeous, and I love the way it looks, and and we we achieved everything we set out to make, but it's a very, um, it has a veneer to it that is very, uh, an austere veneer, (laughs) and again, we wanted this movie to be rougher around the edges and for the nostalgia that you get from shooting on film to feel a little bit more tactile. So Super 16 stocks today look as good as 35mm stocks looked in the 70s. 35 is so clean and so grainless today. They really manufacture it for the DI now. So it's so, so crisp. Super 16 looks Terrific. You know, we aren't even using the full negative. We cropped it to 235. So we're using as, we were like, we're like, let's use, get as little grain on, or, you know, as little resolution in screen as possible. Let's go anti resolution with this. Uh, and, and so the movie looks gorgeous, but it's a, to my eyes, an unsentimental version of nostalgia. Like we're not drenching it in the affectations of what we remember from that era. We're not trying to make a movie that reminds us so much of the films of the 70s as we are trying to just make a movie that probably could have been made in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And so it was much more nuts and bolts. We weren't stressing over the lighting. I mean, Joe, certainly, we, we, he lit the heck out of the movie, but we weren't trying to, to burnish it in the way that makes you think of a memory. You know, that's what we were trying to do with Ain't the Body Saints. It was supposed to feel like a memory of a movie from the 70s. This, we were just supposed to, we were just trying to make a movie the way that they would have made it back then. Yeah. This is Dallas, right? It's set in Dallas. It was shot in Cincinnati, okay. Kentucky, Dallas, Fort Worth, Waco. I think that's it. Okay, so it's okay. <laughs> it's right. a, it's it, a hodgepodge, uh, but it's set mostly in Dallas. It's my, and, and most of the shooting was there, or was it actually Cincinnati? Or we did the bulk of it in uh, Cincinnati, and then ten days in Texas. Okay, I was just going to say, there's a little bit here of it. I don't know if this is part of the original story because you're you're still Dallas, right? I still live in Dallas. Yeah, there's an element here of also a lived-in feel here yeah. to this movie, and I, I I just kind of automatically associated that with. I mean, this was going to be my Dallas movie, and we really wanted to shoot the whole movie <laughs> there, uh, and in, in Dallas and in Fort Worth, but. Um, you know, the way you make movies now is you go to places that have great tax incentives that give you more bang for the buck. And if we had shot this in Dallas, we would have only had 20 days as opposed yeah. to 30. So it was an easy decision to make. And I knew that we could go back to Texas and, you know, Fort Worth really stepped up to the plate and allowed us to get, we, we shot for 10 days there that we wouldn't have been able to do if they hadn't really helped us out on a civic level. <laughs> but it was, uh, it was definitely my love letter to the city that I live in. And... There aren't a lot of movies that take place in Dallas. Um, JFK probably is the most notable one. There are even fewer that shoot there. But I think one of the movies that captures Dallas the best is RoboCop, which is set in Detroit, but just it, you know, it's shot in Dallas. It's probably the most notable movie shot in Dallas that's not set there, and it looks the way Dallas looks. It's, you know, that was made in 86, 87, so it's changed. the city's changed a lot. There are a lot more buildings. The skyline's changed. But nonetheless, the way 
the highways look, the mix masters, the road signs, just the, 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 the je ne sais quoi, the city is alive and well in Robocop. <laughs> and so that was sort of a touchstone for me to, to, to kind of capture the Robocop magic in Old Man and the Gun. Yeah, I think sometimes we try and make too much of this connecting something to like a director and a director, you know, trying to tie everything together as, you know, uh, you know, overdoing it with the auteurs. But, you know, there's an element here of, I mean, you're a young man, you're not, you know, but there's a thing about this feeling of looking at the end. Mm -hmm. And and there's an element here of last, a last, and I didn't, you know, now it is this yeah, last film. But it, yeah. And there's this thing where it's like, so there's a, that's kind of, even though this is an easy film, there, there is something there that kind of gives it this emotional heft underneath. And, you know, it's hard, we've talked about Ghost Story before, but, you know, the, there's a thing with, you seem to have a preoccupation with time and, yeah. and, and sight, and, and that seems to be something that maybe you really took, to, took with this, is that uh, the weight of time and cycles and thinking about. Art. I mean, ironically, I worked against that because I knew that just by having Redford in the film, it would have that gravity. I didn't have to work too hard to get that in there. You just look at that, you know, we hold on those close-ups of him for a long time and you see, you see time. And then we have the montage at the end where we see him as a young man. You get the sense of, of time passing by before our eyes as we watch him, as we watch him move through the years. Pulling those clips from old movies. It was, uh, it was, yeah. That montage has always been in the, script, in the script, but I didn't know if we would ever get to see him in his youth. And, and then I realized, oh, we could use The Chase, yeah. this amazing Arthur Penn movie that very few people have seen. But you know, and anyone listening to this should go check out The Chase. It's an extraordinary film. And, and you got uh, a nice clean image from it. They must have done some gone and scanned the negative. Or it's something. on iTunes. It's not. It's, oh, it's, okay. it's in it pretty is, good shape. It you is got it is. <laughs> and uh, and we uh, were. You know, lucky enough to get that, and that really made that conceit—the idea of time and of, of of eventuality really kind of ring home in a way that it might not have otherwise. Um, the only thing I, I look—is Peter Pan? What's next for you? Are you going right into that? You know, I just turned in a draft last week. Mm -hmm. I've been turning in drafts for two years, but you know, the studio and I both want to make sure this is not only a Peter Pan movie worth making, but in many ways, the definitive Peter Pan movie. So I am really pleased with the, where the script is right now. Um, I hope they feel the same. We'll find out soon. Uh, any execs who are listening to this, you know, know that I'm happy with it. Uh, but I feel like more than likely I'll make another movie first. Mm -hmm. I've got something else that I'm hoping to do in short order here. But is that, there's a little bit of a balance here of the ones that you can move quick on and the ones that, because yeah, Pete like, Dragon, I know it would, took a while. Took a while. And they need to take a while. Yeah. Peter Pan's going to take a while. And knowing that it's going to take a while, there's you know a smaller movie that I think I can fit in beforehand that won't you know upset the schedule of, of Peter Pan in any way. And so we're you know quietly putting the pieces for that together. And maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. But it's something else. It's an else. important balance, right? Because, you know, it, 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 for someone who loves movies and who loves making them, yeah. it's you know, and who has a very short attention span, you know, I can I, I can sit through a a, a Bellatar movie any day, but if you ask me to spend three years on a project, I'm like, oh, I can't do it. I can't pay attention for that long. My focus is not strong enough. I uh, I just want to keep trying new things and exploring new territories, and and I I often have the itch to just make something, and someday I perhaps will learn the wisdom of percolating longer on a, on a given project. But for the time being, I like striking while the irons are hot. And right now I've got a couple that I, 
I really want to make. So I think I think more than likely, um, hopefully this time next year we'll be talking about a different movie. Something shorter, short, shorter, like a, like a ghost stories. Is it, it's I'm, bigger than it'll be bigger than that. You know, I can't make a million ghost stories because you can't ask your friends to work for free <laughs> over and over again. But um, but it, you know, it's more in that spirit. Okay. And uh, and maybe it'll happen after Peter Pan. I don't know. I, I can't wait to make Peter Pan, and I hope that it comes to pass soon. But I do think that there's a room there's room for for both of those movies in the very near future. And before I let you go, uh, you are now living in a two filmmaker household. I am. Yes. yes uh, great. Uh, Augustine, your wife's film is fantastic. Never going back. Uh, that was out into the summer. Yeah. Uh, it was at Sundance, kind of, and and now. Uh, it seems like she's got like a, a Ryan Reynolds, Reynolds movie she's going. She's Ryan Reynolds. She has a couple other things. She's actually, you know, I came here to New York for press, and she's already here because she's directing another television series here, her second of this year. So I, um, I am, I am both incredibly proud of her. I am, uh, I admire what she's doing. I learn from her. She's an amazing. There's things that she, a talent that she has that I do not have for working with actors. So I'm learning a lot from her about that. And, and I also just think like, you know, if I ever decide that I've had enough, I can retire. I can do that <laughs> safely because she is just, she's just, you know, taking off in a, in a really exciting way. And the choices she's making, the movies she wants to make. I mean, she made a movie with a 80 minute running poop joke in it. And that just delights me. You know, I don't know if I can ever get away with that, but that definitely fits my sense of humor. So <laughs> I, I will happily pay money to see her films. All right. Well, David Lowry, thank you for coming in. And uh, Old Man and the Gun. Uh, it's starting wide, right? It's going to be it's, like the next Friday. The, it's going to be, or is it going to go? It's New York, LA. Oh, it then, is New York, LA. And then pretty wide October 5th. Okay. And then super wide October, whatever the next week, 11th, 12th. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. All right. I'm glad I asked that. All right. Well, thanks for coming in. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.